Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Orrin Herskowitz. Orrin is the Senior Vice President of Intellectual Property and Technology Transfer for Columbia University, as well as the Executive Director of Columbia's Technology Ventures, also known as CTV. Orrin is also an adjunct professor at Columbia's Business and Engineering Schools. Orrin has served on boards or served as the principal investigator for a number of innovation and entrepreneurship-focused initiatives, including the New York City Media Lab, the PowerBridge New York Clean Energy Proof of Concept Center, the Columbia Coulter Translational Partnership, the Academic Venture Exchange, the New York City Acre Technology Incubator, and Harlem Biospace. In addition, Oren has been a peer reviewer for the Innovation and Entrepreneurship Awards for the National Science Foundation, the U.S. Small Business Association, the Association of Public and Land-Grant Universities, and a published author on the topic of translating university stage technology. Oren is a frequent speaker at technology-focused events in New York City and across the country. Oren has been appointed by U.S. Secretary of Commerce Penny Pritzker to the National Advisory Council on Innovation and Entrepreneurship, serving a two-year term beginning in 2016. Oren received his BA in English from Yale and his MBA from the Wharton School of Business. Prior to joining Columbia, Oren spent seven years at the Boston Consulting Group's New York office as a strategy consultant and was previously an entrepreneur and a consultant to startups. And with that extremely impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Oren. Lisa, thanks for having me here today. I'm really glad to be talking to you. Well, thanks so much again, Oren, for taking part in the podcast. It's really great to have you here. I generally like to start the podcast off by asking my guests about their journey to tech transfer. Oren, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up in New York and at Columbia? Sure, happy to. I was actually, this. mine was a very accidental journey. Um, and I'm, I'm afraid whenever I, I tell the story. I don't think it's very helpful from a, like an aspirations perspective because it was such a random walk. But um, So I was an English major uh, in undergrad, and um, I had gone to get my MBA uh, after graduation after a few years of sort of random jobs out in the West Coast. And post-graduation, um, I, I knew I, I liked uh, entrepreneurship, and but more of the operational side of it. I didn't have any particular specialty. And I thought I would go to the Boston Consulting Group and and try and learn some you know get my sort of operational chops um, and so I was a consultant for uh, seven years as it turned out I, I meant to go for one or two but I really enjoyed the work and so I stayed a little bit longer than I meant to um, and did a, a bunch of re- random cases in um, I, I spent two years in the pharmaceutical industry in a, on a post merger integration uh, did some work with one of the big music labels looking at the way the internet was transforming. Um, music sales and how streaming music services were going to work. This is, I'm dating myself here back in the old days. Um, and then did a project for the Bloomberg administration in New York about, I guess it was like 2003 or 2004, on what could New York do to become a biotech capital to rival Boston. And essentially, it's actually framed in a really interesting way. I said, the, the, the case was, um, what would you have to believe to believe that we could become a biotech capital to rival Boston? So before we even got to the question of what would you do about it, it was, is it even possible? And so as part of that, I was I was leading the case and I was sent out to interview um, a bunch of the stakeholders here in New York. And it turns out that a lot of the stakeholders did this thing called tech transfer, which I'd never heard anything about. Um, and so I interviewed uh, Kathleen Dennis at Rockefeller and Pat McGrath. Um, I spoke to some of the early New York City biotech VCs like Dennis Purcell, Maislin Capital, um, and then some of the longtime boosters of the New York ecosystem like Maria Gotch, it's a partnership fund for New York City. And 
in hearing about their perspective on universities, it sounded like a really interesting place to be and a really interesting challenge to try and fix. And this was sort of back in a different era of tech transfer when it was much more about patents and licensing and some startups, but not the way it is today. So anyway, I put that, you know, I didn't think anything about it and went back to my work at BCG. And then randomly uh, a recruiter, an executive recruiter called not me, but my office mate at BCG uh, and who had a PhD in, in the biosciences um, and tried to recruit them for this open role at Columbia. And he said, you know, I'm not interested, but here, hold the phone and literally passed the phone to me. Um, and the conversations, you know, led to me getting the role at Columbia first as chief operating officer. And then after my fabulous, uh, former boss, Mike Clear stepped down a year later, I took over the office. Wow. That's an amazing journey. And for someone who started off as an English major, it must've been interesting, you know, getting into technology and science like you have. Yeah. Uh, that, that's one way of putting it. I think I spent the first two years with a pretty crippling case of imposter syndrome, if I'm being honest, uh, you know, I, I felt like I was surrounded by all these PhDs and talking to the faculty and talking to venture investors and industry. And I, it seemed like the role of the head of, of an office should be to know as much about the science and the law and the and patents and the negotiation strategies as everyone else. And so, I mean, embarrassingly, like my bookshelf was filled with genetics for dummies and chemistry for dummies and biology for dummies. Like I was, I was trying to do everything I could. Um, to learn about the field. Um, and it, it wasn't for a couple of years that I realized that, you know, we all have to approach these roles in different ways. And that there's no way I could, as a 30-something-year-old, catch up on the many, many years of dedication to science that many of my peers have. And thankfully, at Columbia, we have an amazing team um, in the tech transfer office. Afra Weinberger and her team are incredible and have, uh, you know, and are just not only amazing scientists, but also uh, very skilled at the profession. And so I think it was more about learning to get out of their way and and just be, you know, leverage the things I think I do better and not try and pretend to do things that I don't. Um, and so that helped a lot. Uh, but those were first, those were, yes, interesting. It was definitely an interesting first few years. Yeah. And it definitely sounds like you learned to play to your strengths for sure. Or at least not play to my weaknesses. <laughs> there you go. So I think that's a good segue um, to ask you a little bit about Columbia Tech Ventures. Um, for those of our listeners who are not familiar with it, could you tell us a little bit more about it? Sure. So Columbia Technology Ventures, in this sort of this is our day job at CTV. Um, the tech transfer office at CTV is the so we get around four hundred inventions a year from across the university, and Columbia's got a research budget of about a billion dollars. So maybe a little bit less, around 900 million. Um, so those 400 inventions typically break down. It's about a third, what I what I often call like wet biology. So therapeutics, diagnostics, implantable medical devices, um, drug delivery systems, things like that. It's about a third uh, dry life sciences. So imaging, DNA sequencing, computation, drug discovery, uh, and then about a third sort of everything else. Um, clean energy, photonics, cybersecurity, advanced materials, robotics, advanced manufacturing. Um, so pretty much the whole scope of modern university. Uh, from those 400 inventions, we file about 200 patents every year. We end up doing somewhere between 100 and 120 uh, commercial license agreements out to industry, of which an increasing number um, are to startups. So these days, we typically will see between sort of 15 and 30 new companies formed around Columbia IP every year. And uh, and that so that's sort of the day job. And it's definitely the main focus of the office. I mean, our mission, which we take very seriously, is to help inventions get out of the lab and into the market for the benefit of society. And so that's kind of where the rubber meets the road is getting these technologies out into the real world. On the other hand, increasingly over the years, our office's role has has shifted, I think, to encompass a lot of other things at the intersection of innovation, entrepreneurship, technology-based economic development, technology acceleration, um, education around entrepreneurship, engaging with our local community, so the other institutions, but also the mayor's office and the governor's office um, for regional initiatives. 
um, and even getting involved in, at the federal level in science policy and, and innovation policy. And so the roles really changed a lot. And I, you know, I think across the country, across the country, what you're finding is that I think many tech transfer offices have ended up inheriting those roles on campus, maybe because it's not really clear who else would inherit those roles on campus. I mean, I don't know if you necessarily would have thought that the patent and licensing group would have stepped into some of these roles, but when the universities say like someone's got to be doing it, you know, who who do we who do we think should run this biotech incubator, or who do we think should be helping think through SBIR programs or STTR programs or or engaging with you know educating high school students on high school students or college students about entrepreneurship. Um, sometimes that flows to the tech transfer office, and that's certainly been our experience. Yeah, and I have to say, doing this podcast now for a while, I'm definitely seeing that across tech transfer offices. And interestingly enough, not only in the U.S., but I've had several recent guests outside the U.S. in tech transfer offices, such as Brazil and India and, and Denmark, and seeing um, the same type of things um, where they're multifaceted and handling all these different things, as you mentioned. And I think it's interesting, you know, you're talking about your team handling a lot of different things. You have this lab to market accelerator network, which is really fascinating. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that network. Yeah, I'd be happy to. And it's, it's interesting you mentioned that it's happening internationally. That's, that's what we've seen, too. I mean, we get visitors, and I know that many of our peer institutions do as well. We get visitors from other countries all the time who are trying to replicate the sort of economic, you know, the quote unquote economic miracle that you see happening in, in Boston and now in New York. I mean, it really has in many ways come true. There's a, a thriving tech scene here. The biotech scene is finally getting some traction. Um, and so you see countries around the world are trying to, you know, get some of that fairy dust. Definitely. And I think it's, it's, it's hard to make the argument that a strong tech transfer ecosystem, you, you know, unidirectionally leads to a strong local ecosystem and economy. But it does seem like a good precursor to it. And so I think universities are often on the stop, you know, a stop on the way for people from other countries to try and learn how to do this. Um, you asked about the Lab to Market Accelerator Network. So I'll tell you what that is. Um, the L2M, as we call it, the Lab to Market Accelerator Network, is run by um, my colleague Dimitra Pococo and, uh, and also Mario Romani and my team. And they do an amazing job doing this. So, so this got its, its genesis was interesting. We started off. Um, there's a there's a program called the Coulter Foundation, um, which was started by Wallace H. Coulter. And in the 2000s, it was giving out grants to universities to try and get, in particular, um, um, biomedical engineering based innovations out of the lab and into the market. And this is something we hadn't tried before. So so they gave us a grant to go do this um, and other universities uh, were, were way ahead of us on this front um, and had been working with the Coulter Foundation for years. And Coulter had a very prescriptive process. So Elias Caro is our um, our rep there. And he really, he really wrote us hard. He, he, he uh, taught us a ton about how to get the, how to give these scientists the kind of support they needed to get their innovations out of the market and to the market. So, so things like um, there had to be connections to mentors and advisors, and there had to be uh, education around around you know how how their industries work and on the clinical side and on the commercial side, not just on the research side. Um, and there had to be uh, a teaming of engineers and clinicians on a project so that they understood what the real world experience was and what the pain points were they were trying to solve, the customer discovery. Um, and and then there needed to be a little bit of prototyping uh, funding made available. So they gave grants of up to one hundred and fifty thousand, I think it was. Um, to the teams. And the program was enormously helpful and successful at Columbia. Um, and so based on our experience there, we thought, well, if this works for biomedical engineering, maybe this would work for clean energy. So we pitched it to the New York uh, New York State uh, Energy Research Development Authority, or NYSERDA, which is New York's fantastic sort of energy frontier research group funded by the state. Um, they're really amazing. And so they funded us to work with so it was Columbia, NYU, and a bunch of other institutions, Cornell Tech, CUNY, Stony Brook, and Brookhaven National Labs. We came together to launch a version of this for clean energy called Power Bridge New York. And we ran that for, for quite a few years. 
um, and realized that the experience was very similar. So while the specifics changed, like the amount of money changed and the types of companies and the types of technologies changed, and it was not just Columbia, it was across New York, but the fundamentals were still the same. There was a call for proposals. You needed external judges and advisors to narrow down the set. You needed some sort of a boot camp. They needed to do some customer discovery. Um, they need some prototyping funds, and then there'd be a pitch day at the end in front of investors. So once we'd done two of those, we thought, well, let's see how many of these we could roll out. And so we've ended up since then, we partnered with, um, uh, we run one with the NIH funding um, called the Therapeutics Accelerator, Translational Therapeutics Accelerator, or T-Rex. We do one around cancer called Accelerating Cancer Therapeutics. We've partnered with Takeda to do one around gastroenterology. Um, We've done one with New York City around cybersecurity. And now we launched four new ones this fall. We have one with New York State. It's a $40 million program across all of New York State, which we're running jointly with Mount Sinai. Eric Liam at Mount Sinai, who's fantastic, and his team there. Um, so we're running one around biodefense and preparing for the next pandemic. We partnered with Kevin Ryan um, and Brenton at Alicorp to launch one around computational drug discovery that's also open to all of New York City. And we have partnered with the RTW Charitable Foundation, um, Deborah Slipnitz there, to, uh, to do one around rare diseases, and in particular, pediatric rare diseases. That's also open across New York City. So we think this is a very powerful engine. Um, we think of it as essentially putting down railroad tracks that different trains can run on. Like the, the core is there. And we have a team of people who run all of these accelerators because they run on the same model even though each one is slightly different. You know, and it's been a great run, um, not only for Columbia and for our local institutions here in New York City and New York State, but in particular for the teams, there's been over 400 teams that have gone through these accelerators. We've had well over 40 commercial launches, so either licenses or startups that have come out of those. I think it's actually significantly higher now. Um, There's been over 250 cash awards of about $16 million through these programs that have led to over $200 million of follow-on funding. So it's been it's been a really kind of breathtaking run and one that we're still looking, you know, we're still improving and tweaking, but we've been sharing the model with other universities around the world. And, you know, hopefully this is something that can be useful to people. Yeah, absolutely. And and I'm curious, given that you're in New York City for all these accelerators, where are you even finding space to put all of them? <laughs> yeah, that's. So space. So that is basically the Achilles heel of New York City. Yeah. It's, you know, it's ironic because it's a huge city with tons of real estate. But the problem is it's the real estate's in very high demand. And so one, I should have made that clear. All of these accelerators are virtual accelerators. Okay. That's what I was so wondering. These, these accelerators, there is no space. They are all run using, essentially the education is done in the uh, in and around Columbia or peer institutions. The teams are typically doing their research either in their own labs or in a contract research organization. Uh, some of them will, if they launch, they'll, you know, there's this actually 10 years ago when we started, this wasn't true, but now there's a fairly thriving ecosystem for incubators and accelerators around New York. We have um, Alexandria Launch Labs uh, is opened across the street from the Columbia campus. So our team helped them open up on 165th Street and Broadway. Um, and they've been a fantastic partner. Um, there's also J-Labs in town from Johnson & Johnson. There's BioLabs down at NYU. Um, and there's BioBad out in Brooklyn and, and New Lab out in Brooklyn. So there's now there's plenty of places for companies to, to start and grow. But our accelerators are all, are all virtual. So, Orrin, you've talked a lot about um, everything that you and your team have going on. And I'm curious, can you tell us a little bit about the size of your office? Because given all that you guys are doing, it sounds like it must, uh, you must have quite a few individuals in your office. Yeah, I think the core tech transfer team is something around 30 people for the, the, the core tech transfer. So the patenting and licensing of our technologies, if the licensing team is around 10, and then there's probably about 20 people across the office who support them. Um, what we've done over the years is add resources to support these other initiatives as well. So the lab to market team is three full-time people supporting all those accelerators. Um, we also have an industry relations effort that's going on. It's got a couple of people in it. 
Uh, the NYSERDA, we do a, a lot of work in the energy field, as I've mentioned. And so the various NYSERDA programs uh, have another three or four people. And then we also rely very heavily on um, students. So we have 35 graduate student interns, so mostly PhDs, so the, some postdocs and some MBAs, who support our office. It's called the Columbia Technology Fellow, uh, Ventures Fellow program, Fellows Program, so CTV Fellows. Um, it's incredibly competitive. So we get about 10 applications for every slot we fill. And these graduate students work with us typically for a couple of years, um, learning the trade and also doing things like invention analysis and technology marketing and helping with business plans. So that's an amazing resource. Uh, we recently expanded that into, we have an undergraduate uh, student venture associate program. So they help with our more of our startups. Um, and we last year raised some grant funding to do something called the Diversity and Inclusion in Commercialization and Entrepreneurship Program, or DICE, Columbia DICE, which was um, a program oriented towards, in, towards teaching uh, women and underrepresented minorities, as defined by the NIH, uh, more about careers in commercialization and entrepreneurship um, and connecting them to things like uh, career counseling and resume reviews from executive recruiters and venture capitalists and people from industry to learn about the field. So we we rely very heavily on the incredibly smart students at Columbia, um, and they seem quite eager to learn about the field as well. So, Arn, since you mentioned the DICE program, can you tell us how that program has been going? Yeah, that's been a great experiment. So we had about 20 students in the cohort um, last year, and the feedback was tremendous from them. So with the support of the two foundations that funded it, it was the uh, the Jay Gerwin Foundation and Digitalis Commons, we're going to run that program again this year, but really try and expand it and see what we can do. So the, the team members at CTV who are actually running that program, um, Maria Romani and Joan Martinez, are hoping to focus this year on not only on the graduate students and postdocs in the life sciences, which is what we did last year, but to run a parallel program in engineering in collaboration with the Columbia Engineering School, and also to run one for faculty, um, because we recognize that faculty have, have different sets of challenges, but might also benefit from the kind of uh, colleagues and frank discussion that the group had you know, with the students. And so we're going to be launching those three programs. Um, it was also noted that there's there's other sort of pipeline challenges that we could maybe try and address. We're very conscious of the fact that we're a tech transfer office, and so there's certain things that are like we know about and certain things we don't. But one of the things we're talking about with a, another donor is whether, um, you know, when 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 we talk about friends and family money, like, so they're raising a friends and family round, or the startup starting with friends and family money, um, that's an inherently incredibly privileged perspective to take because the idea that one has friends and family that have spare cash to get a startup off the ground and even to pay the entrepreneur, you know, to pay their rent and food during that first year is something that so many people don't have. And so one of the things we're talking about doing is trying to launch a program that addresses that part of the of the value chain of when these startups launch for entrepreneurs that may not have access to those, those same kind of resources for those first sort of six to 12 months. It's early days, so we'll see if we're able to do that, but that's all on the radar for this upcoming year. Well, and speaking of another program that you have, um, one that actually caught my attention is a podcast called Columbia Invents that you actually host. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about your podcast? Yeah, and I'm also, I'm, I'm interested, I might flip that around and ask you the same question. I, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm interested in, in why one decides to do this in a sense. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> so you first. I, I okay, I'll, I'll go first. I, I started to so I started the Columbia Invents podcast because, you know, I think I mentioned earlier, I'm not a scientist myself, and I and I think I tend to hold the amazing faculty uh, researchers at Columbia um, up on a pretty big pedestal. Um, you know, you we see them, our interactions with the researchers at the university tend to be around those moments when they've come up with something really amazing. And if I'm getting involved in them, in those inventions, then they're typically are a little bit further down the path. So they've got commercial interest. Maybe they're becoming a startup or a license to industry. And so it's, it's easy in a sense to, um, to idolize them and, and their work. And, and yet I, I found like for, for me, it's not as a, as a non-scientist, Sitting down and reading the scientific paper isn't as accessible as actually just talking to them. Um, 
And so the idea for Columbia Events was to try and, in some ways, demystify the work going on in the labs for the layperson. So, I, you know, the, the target audience for that is kind of, we think of it as like the smart generalist Columbia alum um, who might have hear about these inventions and hear about these successes and want to know a little bit more about the scientists behind them. You know, how did they get interested in their work and, and what does it really do in layperson terms? And what failures did they encounter along the way? Where did their funding come from? How do they use their graduate students? What do they do when they're not when they're not making life changing inventions? Like, what do they do with for fun? What music do they listen to when they write their grants? Um, it, it, you know, what what are what's their what's their where do they learn from? What books do they read? What podcasts do they follow? Um, so it was really it was in, for me it was you know the primary audience for this is just me. I find it very interesting. And and love learning more about how they how these scientists work in their labs, but hopefully it'll be of interest to other people as well. Yeah, I think they're fascinating to really get the human side, to, you know, which we often, you know, I'm a patent attorney and I work with a lot of researchers and you, we never get to that point. It's always business and, you know, writing and drafting a patent application, moving on to something else. So to be able to learn more about, you know, people you work with and, and these PIs and what led to their research and kind of what makes them tick is is really interesting. I, I mean, I, I've enjoyed the ones that I've listened to. Yeah, no, I've enjoyed yours as well. And, and so how did you get started doing these podcasts? Yeah, so mine um, came as, uh, it was an idea that popped into my mind in the last annual meeting um, when we all met in person. Um, so it was the year before, it was in Austin, um, Austin, Texas annual meeting. And I was at some of the um, kind of social events and, and listening to people from various tech transfer offices share their stories and their successes, their challenges and what they were doing to, you know, be creative. And, and like you said, you know, handle all these things like accelerators and startups and SBIRs and things like that. And and I'm like, you know, this is really interesting, but, you know, there's such limited time here and um, it'd be really kind of fascinating to learn more from various offices and uh, spend, get into a little bit more detail, get in more into the weeds. So I actually started the podcast um, about two weeks um, before we went into lockdown. Um, and I had my first two podcast interviews all set and ready to go right before the autumn national meeting in 2020. And I had that probably 10 or 12 interviews lined up for the meeting in San Diego. And then like I said, we went into lockdown. Um, but it's been interesting because I think I've helped a lot of people or a lot of people have communicated. It's been helpful during lockdown. They've been able to listen and uh, to some of their colleagues and keep up to date with what they're doing and also learn what others are doing and kind of made it a little less lonely during this uh, very long period of of kind of not seeing one another at the annual meeting. So, so that's kind of where I got my start. It was... Uh, it's kind of fortuitous and that I started when I did and it, it just so happened. Um, it worked out kind of well with um, the pandemic. If the, you can say anything worked out well with the pandemic. So, yeah, right. I mean, it's amazing. You've done like a, how many, of, how many of these have you done now? I'm almost, uh, I'm at 75, almost 75 now. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's crazy. And like in a couple of years, uh, I know I really enjoyed listening to them. I think it's, it's been, I was just listening to uh, the one you did with Christy Whiskey um, a few weeks ago, but um it's, uh, I've, you know, it's, it's really interesting. It goes back to, I think, what I said earlier in the podcast that so many, everyone brings something different to the role they're in. Absolutely. And so if you, when you listen to these interviews, you can, you can hear the, you know, the people who come at this from either their former patent attorneys or former scientists themselves. And they really come at this from the, you know, from deep in the technology and following the specific technologies along. There's other people um, who, who might come at this from, from government. I mean, so you've got you know, Julie Lenzer down at UMD, who who was at in the Commerce Department uh, running the Office of Innovation Entrepreneurship prior to coming to this, and you can really see her sort of uh, community focus and the local economic development focus. You've got people like Christy who come at this from the venture capital and yep. startup world who think about everything in terms of you know dollars raised and IPOs and employment, um, and uh, and you know a new autumn president Ian McClure who who's not from the field initially. Um, but it's really taking such a broad systems mentality to it. And just like talking to the the people in the profession, 
it's astounding the, the diversity of opinions and inputs that people bring to the table. Yeah, it's fascinating. Every podcast, I learned something new and different about tech transfer that I never uh, knew before. It's And it's incredible to see what all these different offices are doing. And particularly some of the smaller offices just amaze me what they're able to do with one, two, three people um, and the creativity. Not to say, you know, that the larger offices aren't creative, but, you know, it's really interesting to see what the smaller offices are, are able to do. So um, it's really oh, been, a, it's been a great learning experience and, and I've met some really fantastic people and I'm sure with you too, with your podcast, it, it's the same thing. You're probably every podcast um, you're probably learning something new and, and different that you hadn't realized about one of these PIs that, that you and your team are working with. Yeah. I mean, but I want to pick up on something you mentioned in that, in your comment just there. Like people often think that running a large tech transfer office must be harder than running a small tech transfer office in some because of the complexity. I, I think exactly the opposite. Um, you know, at, at schools like Columbia or MIT or Stanford or Harvard um, or Michigan or Duke that have the resources, I mean, they never feel like enough resources, but that have enough resources to hire uh, professional staff that that you can compensate them well enough that they'll stay and, and you can grow the organization to meet new challenges. Um, uh, the so many universities around the country are just in a such a tough situation of having incredibly tight constraints, not only on staffing, but also on the patent budgets they have. And, you know, one of the things I'm incredibly grateful for at Columbia um, is the recognition that if you don't file the patents, you know, it's not like our world doesn't start and end with patents. Uh, there's so much more that goes into it. But without the patents, it is very, very hard to get these innovations out of the lab and into the market. And and unless you have not only patents, but strong patents, and hopefully in the next, you know, hopefully the, the USPTO will continue reforms so that these patent rights are predictable and strong. And so um, when you have universities that, that allow their tech transfer offices to take these risks and file patents and hold on to them a little while and let them develop and mature to the point where they're ready and not either not file them in the first place or throw them away too early, um, then if you, if you can't do that, then you, it seems like you miss out on so many opportunities that could be the big hits of, of tomorrow or the next year. And so if there are any university administrators listening to this at those institutions, really like your tech transfer offices can be amazing resources for you if you just give them a little bit of rope to run with. Um, but I, you know, I know there's so many competing demands for every dollar at a university, but um, it seems like a, an unfortunate place to economize and cutting the patent budgets and staff budgets of the TTO. Yeah. And it's um, happening more and more um, right now. It seems like too, given the pandemic, a lot of university tech transfer offices are really being squeezed um, due to budget cuts and things like that. So it's, you know, hard on all tech transfer offices now, but I think particularly those smaller offices who've always had to do more with less or having to do even more now with even less. So um, I think you make an excellent point. So I wanted to ask you, Orn, um, a little bit about external partners there at Columbia, and perhaps you could give us some examples of some relationships you have with some industry and venture partners. Absolutely. I think they really come in a, a few different flavors, but we at Columbia, not just our tech transfer office, but the university, are, are big believers in being open to the outside world. And I think our, our current president, Lee Bollinger, who's been the president of Columbia for about 20 years now, um, talks about this as the fourth purpose. So what the fourth purpose means, and actually, I think it's useful to start off with what are the first three purposes. So um, universities historically have been about um, training the next generation of world leaders um, pushing the boundaries of knowledge through basic research in various forms and engaging with your local communities. And what he talks about is the fourth purpose is this idea that in a world as interconnected and complicated as, as Wilmer and now, and that's facing so many existential threats, um, climate change, housing and food insecurity, dis income disparities, um, trust and cyber attacks, um, pandemics, things like that, where they really aren't local or regional problems. They're global problems in many ways, um, or the supply chain, for instance, now, that the modern universities have an obligation and an opportunity to engage with the outside world in a much more meaningful way and make sure that they're driving real world impact, that 
it's you know the first three legs of the the first three um, purposes are important as well, obviously, and still continue to be the core. But that it's really important to be looking outside as well and engaging with the outside world. And so you see that at Columbia, um, the engineering school and the data science institute have uh, deep engagements with IBM that have been going on for many years that encompass not only shared research and uh, an education for the students and also in internships and fellowships, um, but also a technology acceleration piece, which we run for them, um, the, the launch program, which is about getting startups you know, in, in deep tech and, and, and software-based innovations out of the world. Um, the engineering school also has one with Amazon uh, around AI. That is a fantastic program. There's various um, centers throughout the institution, like the Electrochemical Energy Center, which partners with industry. Um, we ran one this year um, with the MERSEC, um, which is uh, a Materials Research and Engineering Center at Columbia, um, uh, with Corning to look for advanced materials. And the venture side, we've got a ton of them. So we run one with Deerfield called Hudson Heights Innovations. So Deerfield has done these partnerships with a number of institutions around the country, and we're one of them. We're working with Bridge Bio now to try and find innovations that they might be interested in funding. We have the one with Alicorp that I mentioned earlier around um, computational drug discovery and what they call it math meets bio. Um, so we really like, on a, I, I should have mentioned, we had one with Sumitomo, we have one with Takeda. Um, we really find that engaging with these firms in a real way, you learn a lot about what they're looking for and what kinds of technologies they see as the future and what kind of problems they're trying to solve. And with those real world engagements, I think the researchers at Columbia hopefully come away energized and, and interested in working on problems that could have a real world impact. And, you know, that helps everybody that helps, that helps society and consumers that helps the researchers and of course, that helps the tech transfer office because it may lead to more innovations that we can help bring to market. Yeah, absolutely. And you must see that from philanthropic and government organizations that you interact with as well, I would imagine. Well, right. So we work very closely with the um, excellent team at the New York, uh, New York City Economic Development Corporation, the EDC. Um, they launched a bunch of initiatives. Uh, they did a program on cybersecurity, which we helped them run. Um, they have an amazing life sciences team that we work with very closely uh, that, for instance, is funding something called the Pandemic Response Institute, which is to help New York City prepare for the next pandemic that will be run by um, Wafa El-Sadr and her team at Columbia and also our partners at CUNY. Um, we partner with New York State, the Empire State Development Team, um, uh, on a variety of life science-related initiatives, um, including the Biodefense Center that I mentioned earlier. Um, yeah, and, you know, and I've, and I've, I've loved working with the – I'm on the board of a couple of different organizations in D.C., um, and I did a stint on uh, the, the Commerce Department on NACI, the um, National Advisory Council on Innovation and Entrepreneurship. And so I think the federal government, city and state governments and a lot of foundations are super interested in this kind of um, this kind of intersection of academia and the um, and the markets um, as a driver of the national economy and as a way to provide good jobs for all Americans, as they say. Um, so to help uh, improve the economies between the coasts. Um, so there's a lot of good that can be done here, and, and it's exciting to be you know, part of that discussion. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a good segue for me to ask you about some of the biggest success stories that CTVs had, um, whether that's successful technology, startups, things like that. So maybe I'll I'll just share one story because I think it pulls together very nicely the some of the themes that we've worked on. There's a faculty member named Henry Colecraft and his student, Scott Canner who are up at the Columbia Medical Center. And uh, they work on um, uh, protein degradation and in particular, the, something around ion channels. And, and so they came up with some innovations about uh, uh, which are designed to stop the body, essentially to stop the body from throwing away perfectly usable proteins. And obviously I'm not gonna get into the science because I couldn't possibly get into the science. <laughs> but <laughs> um, Dr. Colecraft and Dr. Kanner um, had these innovations and we brought them, you know, we helped introduce them to venture capitalists and brought them out to meet, um, to meet the investors. And after millions of dollars of federal funding into their lab, and they got the fairly standard response from the market, which is, this is super interesting. We're very excited about this, but it's too early. Come back to us when you have more data. So, you know, luckily, 
the university administration at Columbia really believes in this stuff. And so, you know, gives our office the resources to run all these different programs, these accelerator programs, and to hold on to the patents, even if they are not immediately accepted by the market. So the faculty and the faculty member and a student uh, went through one of the accelerator programs and got $75,000, I think, to redo one of the experiments and get a, a little bit more data. And then went uh, and got coached on, on entrepreneurship and were given mentors and advisors and spoke to our executives and residents and went back to the market and pitched again. And this time, the VCs said, really exciting. Uh, it's a little bit too early. Come back to us when you get more data. And so, and so yet again, they went back and got a little bit more money from the institution and got did some more experiments um, and some more coaching and went back to the market. And this time the VCs were much more receptive. They ended up closing a, uh, a $63 million A round from, wow. uh, yeah, from Versant, NEA, Alexandria Real Estate Equities, and Cormor Capital. And now it is a startup company located in Washington Heights in the Alexandria Launch Labs Accelerator, which we helped get started across the street from the medical center. So the reason I like that story is um, I think it illustrates how you know, there wasn't, and if you talk to Dr. Colecraft about this, he was one of, I interviewed him for one of the podcasts, but there wasn't like one thing that made this work. It was years of effort and bumping into walls and backing up and trying again and taking advantage of all the resources. I mean, he and his team were so entrepreneurial in the, in the sense of even within the university of taking advantage of the resources that were available and didn't take no for an answer and eventually launched this, this enormous success. And so we're really proud as an institution that Columbia is able to provide these kind of resources and that we have the kind of faculty and students who are willing to take advantage of them. Yeah, I mean, that's a great story because rarely do you get up to bat and hit a home run. You're going to hit a whole bunch of base hits usually. And, and that's a great example where, you know, they kept at it and went back and generated more data, got more funding. So that I think that's a much more realistic kind of view of, of how things really do work in tech transfer and startups. Yeah. And you're starting to see that, you know, I think one of the knocks on New York was in the old days was, well, you know, you don't have a George Church or a Bob Langer here. I mean, you know, we've got these amazing faculty, but they haven't they, there, there haven't been these like serial entrepreneurs who've had massive successes, but you're starting to see these faculty um, do that more. I mean, so up at, uh, at in New York City, so up at up at Columbia alone, we've got Brent Stockwell who's launched multiple startups. Gordana Vodnik Novakovic, who I also interviewed, actually both of those two I interviewed. Um, John Kamisis, who's also on the podcast, um, and you know people like Henry Colecraft, who are now the first company may be hard, but. With this success, we're already launching another startup out of this lab coming shortly. And I'm sure the next round of his startups in the future will be even easier because now he's got the reputation that he does in the commercial world to match the reputation he had in the scientific world. And so it's exciting to think about the future uh, in New York. And I think this is how these ecosystems build and grow. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. So, Oren, with uh, great success also comes challenges. So I'm curious what you think two of your office's biggest challenges are? So I think one challenge that we are facing that many others are as well, which is surprising, is um, many universities are being, many university tech transfer offices are being pushed into new areas where they didn't play before. So, you know, we have, we, have, we launched these lab to market accelerator networks and we've launched um, a, a bunch of programs in clean energy with NYSERDA, and now we're launching a centralized industry relations group across Colombia to be a front door for industry. And there's a couple of um, challenges that come with that, with that. One is, you know, we're currently in the middle of an incredibly tight labor market. And I, it's hot, you know, and part of me feels uh, happy about that for the economy because it means that workers who want jobs hopefully can get jobs, which is great. I don't think that's the problem we all thought we would be facing during the depths of the of the pandemic, um, when the economy seemed to be teetering. Um, but it so it's good to see from a worker perspective, but it's very hard to hire right now. And I know that that's true. There's open positions across the country in tech transfer, really, really great jobs at great uh, universities, you know, Penn and MIT. Uh, everyone's got openings right now um, in Columbia. 
Um, and it's just very hard to find um, great people to fill those roles. So it's a really good time to be looking for a job in tech transfer. I would encourage anyone who's, who's, who's looking and considering the field to really take a look around at the university job listings because there's some great opportunities out there. Um, the other challenge, which I think, you know, luckily isn't, isn't, isn't as complicated, is the job of tech transfer professionals has changed so much over the last 15 years and is, is encompassing so many of these new areas that we've been talking about. And if we all had to make those up from scratch and figure them out for ourselves, it would be incredibly daunting um, and probably would lead to a lot of failures. But one of the true joys of, I think, our profession is that it's so collaborative and open. I mean, people who aren't in it think of us as being competitors. So they think that Columbia must be a competitor with NYU or with Cornell, uh, even just locally and then you know nationally with Stanford and Yale and Harvard and Penn, and et cetera. But we're really not. I mean, we might compete over the grants and we might compete over students, but in the tech transfer world is incredibly collaborative and we share information all the time. And whenever someone comes up with a good idea, it gets passed around and other people try it out and iterate on it and improve it and then pass it back and it, get, and it grows. So I think it would be this job would be almost impossible to do without all the colleagues we have across the country who are feeding us good ideas and then taking our ideas back and trying them locally and improving upon them. Um, it is really a remarkable benefit to the profession and one that I didn't expect. Um, and, and, you know, it really shows the collaborative spirit is alive and well, I think, in academia. Yeah, I'll second that on the collaborative aspect of the tech transfer offices. That's something as well that I've been just amazed by doing this podcast. Um, it's an incredibly, for lack of a better word, tight community. And that's one of the things I noticed at the autumn annual meetings is that, you know, everybody's sharing with one another, trying to help one another with whatever issues or problems they're facing in their office and, and trying to come up with common solutions. So, um, it really is an uh, amazing group of individuals. And like you said, people would think you're competitors, but in actuality, that's not the case at all. Yeah. So, Orrin, I wanted to ask, what outside organizations are you involved in, um, whether they're tech transfer related boards or, or other things? Um, well, obviously, I'm a member of Autumn, uh, the Association of University Technology Managers. It's an amazing resource. It's run. Steve Sasalka and his team doing a great job of running it. Um, and I'm always deeply indebted to the presidents and the board members of the organization, um, uh, Mark previously and Ian now and, and everyone else who puts time into that. It's just such a great resource for sharing information. I can't tell you how many times I post an email to to the member association saying, like, does anyone have any recommendations for an attorney who does blank or like we're trying to do a deal in the following area and it's a new one for us and we don't know anything about how these structures work. Does anyone have any ideas on how to structure it so it's helpful to both the startup in Columbia? And you get responses back like within, you know, seven or eight responses within a day. It's just amazing. So Autumn's fantastic. Um, I am involved in, uh, there's a couple of different other tech transfer groups. Like I'm a member of Ivy Tech, which is a group of the Ivies plus Washington University, Johns Hopkins, MIT, Stanford who get together once a year for three days to uh, share ideas and best practices. Um, we have a similar organization here in New York called NIAC, which is all the New York City uh, research institutions, plus uh, Stony Brook and Cold Spring Harbor that get together four times a year for a similar purpose, um, you know, to welcome new venture capitalists to town, talk about programs we're running, we collaborate on pitch days. So those are all great. Outside of tech transfer, um, I'm on the board of the Center for American Entrepreneurship in D.C., which is dedicated to promoting uh, American entrepreneurship, not surprisingly. Um, I'm a senior fellow with the Center for Strategic and International Studies in D.C., working on their U.S. Innovation Competitiveness Program uh, with Walt Kopan and um, Andre Iancu and a few others. I'm trying to look at the, the challenges facing American, American innovation uh, in the years ahead um, and maintaining our place in the global economy. Um, I'm on the uh, I'm on an advisor to Incubate, which is a venture capital group, life science venture capital group in DC. So I, that's where I've been spending my time. Um, it's you know it's it's great to be part of the of these various communities and try and learn from everybody and share the ideas back. So, Orrin, I generally like to close the podcast by asking my guests if you could have any three wishes granted or a vision realized for your office, what would that be? This is going to sound cheesy, but actually, I feel like. Doing this job in general 
And having the team we have in our office um, who are who just amaze me every day with what they're able to accomplish um, and their patience and collegiality at an institution like Columbia, which believes so deeply in innovation and entrepreneurship and tech transfer and making an impact on the world. Um, I, I actually feel like when, you know, when I, there, there really aren't any pent up wishes. Um, it is an incredibly privileged and lucky um, place to work. And, and I think I'm, I'm, you know, I'll stand pat. I'm, I feel like we've got what we need and I, all I want to be able to do is to get a chance to continue to work with the team and try and accomplish great things. That's awesome. Well, congratulations to you and your team. That's fantastic. Well, Lauren, I can't thank you enough for all your insights and time today. This has been an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed having this opportunity to talk to you. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? Oh, sure. You can email me at oren.herskowitz at columbia.edu. I won't, it, it's a long name to spell, but I'm sure it'll be on the podcast page. So oren.herskowitz at columbia.edu. Yeah, it'll be there for people to find. Well, thank you so much again, Oren. It's been really great to have this opportunity to talk to you. Okay, thank you, Lisa. And thanks for everything you do with these podcasts. They're really fun to listen to. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.